What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what's going on behind the scenes at their companies so that the rest of us can learn from their example. Today, I'm talking to Kevin McArdle, the founder of ShoreSwift Capital. Instead of starting companies from scratch, what Kevin does is acquire companies, but not in the manner that you might be familiar with. The companies that Kevin buys are not VC-funded rocket ships. Instead, he invests in smaller revenue-generating companies that are often run by small teams or even solo founders. Kevin's only been doing this a couple of years, but he's already bought something close to 30 companies. Now, most of us entrepreneurs don't really consider buying a company to be a viable option. We think that we have to start one from scratch. So my goal here is not only to learn what kinds of things that you as a founder can do to sell your business to somebody like Kevin, but also to find out what kinds of lessons Kevin himself has learned in the past couple of years having bought so many companies and find out if this is a viable path for other would-be founders to take. So without further ado, I present to you Kevin McArdle. I'm here with Kevin McArdle of SureSwift Capital. Kevin, how's it going? Great, Portland. How are you? I'm doing excellent. So you are the founder of SureSwift Capital, one of the coolest companies that I think a lot of people have never heard of. And maybe the best way to describe what you guys are doing is through one of the things that you told me over email while we were setting up this conversation. You said that, I think it's important for founders and entrepreneurs to know that there are exit opportunities for your business that can be amazing and life-changing, but that don't require selling your soul to venture capitalists or having to become the next Uber. So what are those opportunities and how does what you're doing at SureSwift play into that? Well, it's a good opportunity to, to talk about a subject that I'm pretty passionate about, which and not just because it's my business, but because I think a lot of your audience, well, I think you're providing a different source of content for an audience that's probably starved for it because the, the normal media channels are full of stories like from sources like TechCrunch and other outlets like that that want to talk about what's the next Facebook or what's the next Uber or, you know, these two kids from Dublin created a $9 billion company called Stripe. And those stories are amazing. That's part of what makes America an amazing place to start and grow a company. And it's so incredibly rare that I don't think most people should aspire to that. And in fact, most of those home run success stories were probably started with the idea of if I could just start my own company or if I could just be my own boss, that would be a home run and I would have such a better life than I do today. Or maybe they started with the idea of like, you know what, if I really crush this, I might be rich, which people define that in different ways. But I doubt each of those people, whether it's Zuckerberg or the Stripe guys said, my goal is to have X gajillion dollars. Um, and I think the, the most of the successful businesses in, in this country or elsewhere are, um, you know, more commonplace stories, things that TechCrunch won't cover because they're boring. But, you know, some enterprising person, young and old, could start a company and work their tail off for three, four, five, eight years and build a really successful company and sell it for what in almost any person's eyes would be a life-changing amount of money. Uh, and that could be anything from, as you know, some people's lives would change at, with a $100,000 check. Most people's lives would certainly change with a seven-figure check. And that is a huge home run success story and one that should be celebrated. And we just don't hear that much about that. We founded this company with the idea of you know, we could roll up successful companies that were you know, ready to be sold at a, a stage of profitability and traction where they were sustainable. We could provide you know, some business discipline, experience, expertise, extra funding, extra people, et cetera, et cetera, to help those businesses continue to grow. And, you know, I, I didn't like set out to create a, another exit path for people, but I, I realized that it is an exit path that a lot of people don't realize is there. And too much of the, the conversation you know, online or at a conference or, or in, the, in the media is have an idea, get funding from people that may or may not actually believe in your idea, but they're just funding a whole a thousand ideas in hopes that one of them is the next Uber. And, you know, you work your 
worked like a slave for those people. And the only success is either, you know, public offering or sell for half a billion dollars. And there are so many infinite levels of success, you know, along that path, even before getting funding, which I don't think is a success in, in and of itself. I just think what, what I like about Indie Hackers and your podcast is that you are talking to real people with real aspiration and yet, you know, reasonable expectations of what success means. Not low expectations, but reasonable expectations. Yeah, I don't think I could have said it better myself. And I've got a ton of questions to ask you about what you guys are doing at SureSwift Capital because uh, you're the first person I've had on this podcast who's actually just buying companies. But first, let's let's get some context out of the way so listeners have kind of an idea of what's going on. How big are you guys at this point and how many companies have you bought? Yeah, we don't release like a whole lot of detail on financials. Like some people's like the fund is X number of dollars or so many assets under management. What we are public about is that we've been in business for a little over two years. We've acquired 28 companies in the two years. Now that's a that's a large number. Some of those were very small transactions. We kind of started small and stair-stepped our way up to larger deals, but you know, more recently and going forward, we're looking to do deals in the check size of like somewhere between $1 million and $10 million. 28 companies is a ridiculous number to buy in only two years of being in business. That's crazy. It has felt very ridiculous at certain times, but you keep in mind they're, they're not all, you know, very labor intensive. Some are very small. Many were, you know, acquired and, you know, the, some were kind of passive income type businesses that you hear a lot about because, you know, the idea was gain some cash flow, gain some knowledge, start stair-stepping our way up. So, you know, we, we're, I'm very proud of the success we have and how, how large we've grown, but I don't want to overinflate people's expectations of where we've been. Yeah, not at all. I mean, even 28 tiny, tiny acquisitions would be a very impressive number in my mind, and I think in most listeners' minds. But to go back to what you were talking about earlier, I think the way that you described the startup landscape of kind of like these diametrically opposed visions of you know, the Silicon Valley model where it's it's either a billion dollars or bust versus what's going on on indie hackers and, and other parts of the world where people are really just trying to, to find realistic outcomes, I think really strikes a chord with me personally, obviously, and with a lot of people. And what makes your story so interesting with what you're doing at SureSwift is that getting acquired is something that's typically associated with those high growth startups. Like these are companies that have raised money and they typically care less about revenue and solid business fundamentals. And instead, they care more about using their funding to prioritize growth above all else. And I think they tend to have more success achieving some sort of mass market dominance that makes them attractive targets for strategic acquisitions to big companies. Or even more commonly, you know, they use their funding to build out a team of engineers that's attractive to a company like Google or Salesforce who just wants to hire talented engineers. Uh, but you rarely hear about bootstrapped and profitable and smaller tech bus businesses discussing acquisitions. You know, usually people who are doing what we're doing, typically, you know, their only exit is making money, you know, and and generating revenue and hopefully riding that wave as long as they can. So given that state of affairs, how did you decide to get into this business? And what made you think this is a good idea when really this is not something that people tend to associate with ND and bootstrapped businesses? Yeah, there's a lot there. So let me let me give you a few comments on that. Um, for your audience and anybody either thinking about starting a company or who has started, hope, hopefully they've put some thought into this before they've started. But I think it's important to define success for yourself. And I don't think looking to the outside world to define success for you, which is strategic acquisition or you know rocket ship growth or uniform valuation, I, I, I hope that more of the world is starting to pay less attention to more of the real people like us doing real work. It might be an interesting story, but then we move on with our days and we don't get too distracted by it. I think if one defines success for themselves, it's a lot easier to march down that path and know when you're on the right track and when you're not. So for me, my story, success for me was about a change in lifestyle. So I shared with you you before we started recording that I've been working in a corporate job for 15 years and had built up a you know very successful career. I had overachieved most of my financial goals. I you know had you know fancy titles and lots of responsibility, and I was just kind of done. I wanted to do something different, 
um, I had stopped being uh, challenged by that. And I had stopped looking above me at the org chart and seeing the job that I wanted next. So I knew I needed a lifestyle change. And so when I started thinking about, um, you know, before even knowing what company to start, or if in fact that was my path, I started thinking about, okay, what do I want? Well, I don't want to take a big step backwards financially, but it would be acceptable for me to make a little bit less money if I were happier doing what I was doing. For me, the company I was working at was, you know, hard charging, very aggressive, there was always travel involved that took me away from my family and something of a change in, you know, just that lifestyle, having a little bit more control over where I was when I traveled, those sorts of things. Those were all a benefit to me. So it was pretty easy to see that starting this company would help me toward that success, which I had defined for myself. And so I think it's important for your, your listeners, your audience to think about that as well as you know there's a lot of discussion on the forum and in your podcast about what to do uh, i think it's great providing discussion opportunities of like okay i know i want to be an entrepreneur but i don't know the thing to do that's okay there's lots of discussion about kind of finding that path but i think there's a step before that that i think that people should take which is why do i want to do this in the first place and those are probably easy answers. You can tick down one through five, like either I want control. I want to work for myself. I want to be a small business owner. I want to be rich. And all of those are valid and good reasons. There's no better or there's no like right or wrong answer. But if you haven't like taken the time to think about what do I want right now? And then how will I define success in three years or five years? Those questions take you down very different paths when you're starting a business. Yeah, totally. And I think, like you said, it's so relative and it's so easy to look at other people and, and what they want and let that kind of guide your own decision making as to what you want. And that can certainly be a negative, but I also think you can turn it into a positive by just kind of taking advantage of how it works and the psychology behind it. So, for example, we tend to look at people who are close to us and we tend to look at people who we interact with and we look at what they care about and that influences what we care about. So if you have a goal that might not be perfectly aligned with what society values, if you're saying, hey, I want to start a business that's able to you know, allow me to quit my job and take care of my family, whereas TechCrunch is blasting, you need to be the next Facebook or you don't matter, you're just a lifestyle business, uh, then maybe what you should do is find other people to hang around who actually have the same goals as you. And then they'll become your new society and suddenly your goals that you personally want will be in alignment with what the society around you wants and you'll feel a lot better about pursuing that stuff. Absolutely. Being an entrepreneur doesn't feel weird if you're surrounding yourself with other entrepreneurs, um, whether that's find a co-working space where everybody else is trying to hustle and get something off the ground or just, you know, I you know, was fortunate to have a community of people that I was already friends with that all ran their own businesses, everything from like technology companies to hotels to consultancies or whatever. And for them, they looked at me and they're like, why haven't you left this corporate job already? It's weird, you know, because they knew me and they knew my my spirit, and my drive, and whatever they wanted to do. And so they actually helped push me down that path. But you're right. If you don't have those people around you, you know, whether it be family or friends, et cetera, that think it's unusual or don't think that you can make enough money or don't think that you're well-equipped to be an entrepreneur, they're going to reinforce those negative ideas that every one of us already has, by the way, like no matter how, um, successful somebody is, uh, I believe there's a point in every day or, you know, fall asleep every night or waking up every morning where we have those self-doubts. So if you are able to surround yourself with people who are encouraging the best behavior and the best parts of you and not encouraging the self-doubt, your, your chances of success will go away. Totally. And one of the biggest problems that I think people face is taking the initial plunge to becoming an entrepreneur. Someone like me, it was pretty easy uh, because I knew from an early stage that I wanted to start a business, even when I was a kid. And I kind of started in college. So I had no responsibilities, no bills, no family to take care of, no mortgage, uh, very low expectations and inexpensive needs. You know, I could just eat ramen and rent crappy apartments and even uproot myself. I, I moved from Boston to San Francisco. That was super easy. But for anybody starting later in life, it's not that easy to become a founder because there's a lot more friction among all those things that I just listed. And that applies to you because you didn't start your business until you were in your late 30s. 
I think it'd be interesting to, to get into some of the nitty gritty here and, and ask you, you know, what the, what's the story behind how you got into this and how hard was it for you to make the transition given that you had other responsibilities in your life? Yeah, so those other responsibilities were namely a mortgage, a wife, and four children. Um, and all of that is in contrast to somebody just out of college eating rather than living in an apartment. Um, I had the extra challenge of being a U.S. citizen living in Canada, which is I was there on a foreign assignment for my corporate job. And when I decided to leave that job, I had to figure out a valid, and, and my family decided we were going to stay in Canada for at least the short term to get the business off the ground and make sure everything was stable. I had to figure out how to maintain that residency and maintain my ability to stay in that country. So that period of my life, even just thinking about it now, was really hard, really scary. I was fortunate to have a wife who understood kind of why this was important, not just for, for me, but for our family long term. We have always been a really good team and we just kind of talked through all the, the ins and outs. Um, but the it, it's actually in that sense, it was very much in contrast to you starting your own business. Um, but in a sense, if you provide yourself options, if you live a life in such a way that you're, you're providing yourself options, then the, you know it's easier to take advantage of those options. And what I mean by that is we as a family had always spent below our means. So just because I got a raise from the job didn't mean I went out and got a bigger car. Or, you know, if I got a big bonus, I didn't go, you know, blow it on a trip to, you know, a month-long trip to Europe. You know, we lived a comfortable lifestyle. We, we never wanted for things, but we always, always lived below our means so that we were saving. Um, and so when I started crunching the numbers on, you know, can I leave my company job and can I survive for what ended up being two years without paying myself, the math worked. If the math hadn't worked, it did. It wouldn't have mattered. And when I say the math worked, I, I knew, okay, we had saved up enough money and we had stock options. We had other ways to kind of fund the lifestyle that we were accustomed to without me having a steady paycheck. If that hadn't been the case, none of the other stuff matters. Like, oh, you have a dream of being an entrepreneur? I don't care. We can't afford our lifestyle. You know, you want to stay in, you know, this beautiful city, Victoria, BC, and, and run your own business? I don't care because the math doesn't work. So it's same, same lesson for kind of back to business profitability over just insane growth numbers. I live my life the way I prefer uh, the companies that I acquire have been been built and been run, which is focus on the bottom line, make smart decisions. And so it was that uh, lifestyle that we had been on a path for, you know, my wife and I, 15, 17 years of living a cons fiscally conservative lifestyle that made it even possible for, you know, when this business opportunity came up, we were able to say yes, have a plan and, and take that leap. Yeah, it's great to hear about what you did because I hear a lot of very creative stories about entrepreneurs who worked nights and weekends or who negotiated with their employers to get a shorter work week. Or uh, my friend Mike Parham, who started Sidekick, actually was able to work on his side project while at work because they were related. But it's also good to hear just like the practical approach, which is save your money and take time off of your job and give yourself the runway to, to just build your business. You don't need anything clever. You just need you know, a sound financial system. Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you're earlier, early in your career or mid or later in your career, all of us can live a little bit more, you know, conservatively than we probably do. And, you know, if you do that, it just, it just creates options. Completely. So the main thing I want to talk to you about today is about buying businesses, because that's what you do. And as I mentioned earlier, I've talked to very few people, especially like ND hacker type people who've gotten their start by buying a business. The vast majority of business owners are also the founders. They've been there from day one, running the entire show. And most people who aspire to be founders are busy learning what I would call these early business lessons. For example, how do I build something that people want? And how do I find my first customers? And after that, how do I build a repeatable strategy for reaching more customers? Whereas you're coming in at a later stage, after most of that stuff has already been figured out. 
what kinds of skills are important in this later phase and what kinds of problems do you, and challenges do you face that early founders don't have to worry about? My skills are completely non-technical and I think that's what separates me from uh, at least a, a good portion of your indie hacker community to illustrate how non-technical um, the computer-based uh, class that I remember most from uh, high school or college or even graduate school was word processing, where in high school I learned how to type. That also happens to be the most valuable class I ever took, um, pays dividends every day. But I was, a, I was a, actually a math and education double major in college because I thought I wanted to be a high school math teacher. I uh, did that for a year and realized I didn't love it enough to you know, sign up for that level of pay and lifestyle for the rest of my life. And I had a friend of a friend who worked at this company, uh, Cerner, that was a, a healthcare IT company. And um, I was able to get into like a sales training program because I had demonstrated some level of um, yeah, intelligence and sales acumen, and they were willing to teach the technology and anything about healthcare. Um, so I kind of grew up and worked just like a business type of environment, uh, you know, along the way, got an MBA in evenings just because I was kind of growing in my Cerner career and realized I was starting to be in the room with, you know, lawyers and accountants and finance people. And, uh, you know, they're, they're using terms that I don't really understand and that I probably needed a little bit more of a business foundation. So that's why I went and did that. But that come at this uh, industry and these challenges purely from a business and an operational uh, perspective. So um, business school is what gave me a little bit of an itch to own my own business or start my own business. And I had always kind of had this lingering idea that if I could find some genius technical person with you know an amazing idea or some great technology, I could certainly help that person grow a business. But it wasn't something where I was actively pushing myself uh, down that path. So the the business that I'm in now is a, is kind of a, a perfect fit for my skill set in that you know I don't have to have that next great idea. Um, there are tens of thousands of great ideas out there being developed now, and I can acquire something where. The, the ideas there, they've gone through all the, not all, but they've gone through many of the trials and tribulations of growing a business, getting traction, finding the, you know, the magical product market fit, having an audience, figuring out how to acquire customers, figuring out how to, you know, have a reasonable level of churn if it's a SaaS business, for example. And, you know, the founder has figured out a lot of the hard lessons. And so, we can come in, um, acquire the business. You know, job one is just don't screw up whatever was working for them. And then we can apply the principles of just business discipline, operating ideas, you know, other, other business tactics or ideas that we, myself and my team come with just from natural you know, experience on our own careers. And we can apply the lessons learned in one particular portfolio company across the others and hopefully take the business beyond what the founder who sold it to me um, was uh, either capable of or interested in, which is another kind of concept that I, I found uh, really interesting and a bit unexpected when I got into this is, you know, if somebody's running a, you know, amazing business that's spitting out cash and, you know, is that, you know, lifestyle business where they're not having to spend 60 hours a week, you know, it seems like the dream scenario that everybody would want. And of course, there's a financial incentive to offload it, you know, that you could either get continue to collect monthly checks for the rest of your life, which is amazing. And that might be somebody's goal. Or you could have a, you know, as we said earlier, a life changing one time payment and be out. But I was surprised to find how many people had this amazing business that many of your listeners and followers would aspire to. And they were just kind of done. They wanted to do something different. It wasn't that they hated their business and they may only be working five or 10 hours a week on it, but they were just ready to hand it off to somebody 
who could continue to develop it and, you know, kind of take it to the next level to use a cliche. But yeah, and that's where where myself and I have a team of people who are amazing technically and have done gone through the, all those uh, peaks and valleys of growing businesses themselves. Um, so it's not that my team doesn't have that capability, but myself, I don't come at this from a technical perspective. It's more, you know, a couple decades of business experience, understanding what it takes to take uh, a, a business and help it grow, um, understanding the discipline required to really be successful in any business. And so that's kind of my different angle on, on this. And I, I wonder if some of your listeners because uh, I, I listen a lot to, to I listen to your podcast. I you know follow the forum as much as I can, and there's a lot of discussion on like well lots of different things. But find something you're passionate about, build something, you know, have a blog, create a course, do some, you know. And and I wonder are there other people like me who are listening to you know okay indie hackers talking about entrepreneurship and growing a business. Yes, I'm in. I want to do that. And okay, write some code and just put out my minimally viable product. Okay, I, you've already said things that I'm completely incapable of doing. <laughs> so I would say acquiring a business is certainly a, a reasonable path to entrepreneurship. Now, the, the hard thing, you, if, if you're you know, a, an indie hacker and it's a side hustle and it's nights and weekends, it doesn't cost any money to, it costs very little money to start something of a business and see how it goes. Obviously, acquiring a business takes capital, but there are ways to to get there. Um, you know, just like if you're a developer, you, you, you go from having nothing to having a successful SaaS product. There's ways to get there and it might just be your own sweat equity, but it takes time and energy and a path and a plan. Well, if, if I'm a, just a person with business experience and no technical experience, and I want to own a business, there is a path to get there. It might be, um, you know, raise money from people who trust me. It might be partner with a technical person who could use some help. And it's just a slightly different path, but it's still there for people who have the, I think the, the, the one ingredient that's common among all of it is if you're passionate and if you're dedicated and you're willing to endure what will inevitably be some hard times, there is likely a path for you to get to on your entrepreneurship entrepreneurial journey. So let's say I'm a first-time entrepreneur. How realistic is it for me to consider buying a business and taking it over instead of starting from instead of starting one from scratch? And what kinds of things should I consider and what mistakes am I likely to make in that scenario? That is that is important to talk about. I think one should think about it in the same way of like starting a business from scratch and writing code and et cetera, et cetera. There, there's gonna be there's a thousand ways you could screw it up. And there's maybe a dozen ways to get, get it right. So when thinking about acquiring a business, you should have uh, the same sort of plan and discipline as many of your listeners probably have of like launching a business themselves. So in an ideal situation, it's going to be something that you care at least a little bit about. If you just acquire some business because it's for sale and you happen to know the person, but you have no interest in what they're doing, you're not going to be successful if you don't have some level of interest in, in that thing. And there are enough businesses for sale that you can probably find something that you have some interest in. And there's all sorts of mistakes to be made. I made it sound like, you know, kind of easy because founders have figured out a lot of the hard things and, you know, they've got an audience, they've got, you know, recurring revenue, they've got acquisition channels, but running an internet business is hard and there's all kinds of ways that it could get screwed up at any moment and the landscape is constantly changing about what works one day might not work the next month so when a business is for sale the the seller and or a broker that's representing them is going to make it look just wonderful and they're going to highlight all the wonderful things and they're going to de-emphasize, if not hide any flaws that they know are there. So um, there is risk in doing this. Not every acquisition is going to be successful. And hopefully it's a little bit less volatile than picking a stock, but there is that level of risk. So I don't necessarily have like a, a perfect 10 step program of what to do if you are interested in acquiring a business. 
I think the most important thing that somebody could do if that is their path is treat the acquisition of a business as if it were a full-time job. And that may run counter to kind of the, you know, side hustle nature of, you know, start some fun outside, get enough money, and then quit your day job and go do that. And that, that might be a reasonable path for somebody. But, um, you know, if you envision the prototypical coder that's following you, they're putting, if they're going to be successful, they're probably putting in meaningful hours, either, either nights and weekends, or like you said, figure out a way to do it in conjunction with their job or smaller work hours, but they're going to put in meaningful time to develop that product, figure out how to market it, you know, make some mistakes, talk to customers, all those important things are on that path. So it's a, it's a different path if you're going to acquire a business, but uh, you should be planning to spend equally as much time to get it right. So the positive is you could buy a business and be two years ahead of where you were if you were starting it from scratch. But there are also so many other, so many factors to consider when you're evaluating. Like, what is the right business model for me? What is something that I understand? Am I able to kind of take over the any contractors, employees working on this business? Or is it something that I'm going to have to do myself and pick up whatever that person is doing? If I'm not capable, if it's a solo founder developer who created this thing and I'm a business person, can I hire somebody to take over the developer type things that are, that are going on there? And so I would, I would say acquiring a business is absolutely a viable path to entrepreneurship. And that doesn't mean it's easier or faster. And to do it right, somebody should plan to invest the time and energy to get to that answer the right way. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me because I think probably a lot of listeners and I myself have never really considered that to be an option. Like I've never said, you know what, instead of starting a business, I'll just buy one. I've always thought I've had to build it from scratch. And I have so many questions about how you actually do that effectively. For example, how important is it to know the previous history of the business? Like how many details do you need to know? Because I imagine it's somewhat disorienting to kind of jump into the middle of a business and you know, you've done your due diligence and you, you know what their business model is, you know how they're getting customers, but you don't know the history, right? You don't know every email that the founder sent and you don't know necessarily, you know, every start and stop that they've had, every failed attempt at doing something that they've had. It would be like like joining like the fourth episode of Game of Thrones without having watched the third uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and having to make political decisions. You know, you'd probably end up dead very quickly. So how do you look at the previous history of the businesses that you acquire? Uh, I think it's important to get as much detail as possible. And I think anybody, you know, there's, there's a whole line of kind of thinking and content that you really could provide to people on all of these things, like episode after, after episode, not just necessarily with me, but there's a whole, I know you had, um, you've had brokers on the, on the podcast before. So there, there's a lot of, there's a whole um, mountain of, of content that, that's there. I would say any anybody looking to sell a business. So put yourself in, you know, Cortland. If you're selling me one of your past businesses, you would expect me to ask a lot of questions, right? And I wouldn't necessarily ask you to supply me every email that you've ever sent, because frankly, I I couldn't read it all, and I don't know what that would tell me. But it's totally reasonable for me to say I want to see your financial records for the past two years. And I want to know any you know critical relationships you have. I want to see your customer list. I want to know the you know bell curve distribution of which customers pay which amounts per month if it's a you know subscription or a SaaS business. Uh, I want to know any critical relationships you have either with uh, suppliers or contractors or you know if there's a particular customer that's bigger than the rest. I want to know every detail about that one because that to me is risk if that person, if that customer disappears. So, um, you know, we, we do as much due diligence as we can on a business. And if somebody is actively positioning their business for sale, particularly if they're going through a broker, that broker is going to force them to kind of get their information together in a format that somebody like me is um, able and willing to consume it access to all of the analytics related to your business is like table stakes for doing something like this. So 
there, there is kind of a, a normal way of doing things in terms of this information is appropriate and, and will be asked for. And there's also probably a limit to that, not just in terms of like volume of, you know, 10,000 emails over five years, but like there's certain things you might consider trade secrets that I might ask for, but people might not want to, uh, to show unless we're into an active, like uh, we have a letter of interest that both parties signed. We've aligned on most of the deal terms. And now we're just kind of looking at more of the nitty gritty items. And I'm making sure there are no red flags that haven't been uncovered already. So there is kind of a standard set of, of expectations that buyer and seller would have. And, you know, that I think every situation, it depends on the business that we're talking about. Certain things that are very straightforward, uh, you don't need all that much information other than what you can see on a website and some certain financial stuff and analytics to understand this is a fit or it is not a fit for me or my company or my portfolio. And then other businesses are way more complex and require way more time and due diligence to to get to that answer of is it the right fit for me and is this the right valuation you know whether i propose it or the seller's asking for a number is that number fair given all of the opportunity and risk associated with that business so one of the most practical considerations that somebody in the market to buy a business is going to run into is what you already mentioned, which is that it actually costs money to buy a business. You're not going to get it for free. How cheap is too cheap in terms of buying a company? And, and how much money should you know, a would-be purchaser really be expecting to spend at minimum? Um, you'd be surprised. You can buy businesses for as low as like a couple grand. I mean, that's not the market that I'm in. But if somebody is looking to just get started, like those are out there. You know, I think the more you can, well, there's two ways I'd like to answer that. The more you can spend, the better off you will be for a couple of reasons. If a business is worth more, it's probably, if the asking price for a business is higher, it is generally worth more because it's more stable, comes with less risk. Uh, the other option is, uh, let's say, you know, in, in I don't even know what people would consider reasonable. Let's say somebody can squirrel away $50,000, raise it from their friends and family. We're talking like this is somebody making a decision. Do I do I go to Code Academy and write something over six months or do I take more of a business path because I'm not a coder? Well, let's say hypothetically you could find $50,000. Then a question that that person should ask themselves, and I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give a right or wrong answer, but there's, there's kind of two options. There are the multiple options. You could go find a business for fifty thousand dollars. That's probably going to be a way better answer than anything you could find for five thousand dollars. Or you could buy two businesses that are worth twenty-five thousand dollars, or five businesses that are worth ten thousand dollars, or some sort of a mix there. And there's pluses and minuses to both approaches. So if you just take the two ends of the spectrum, either one business for 50 grand or five businesses for 10 grand, you know, on the, on the one end of the spectrum, if it's one business for 50 grand, you can focus on that one thing and do that one thing really, really well. The downside is there's risk with every single business and whether the seller knows the risk and is trying to hide it from you or whether something happens that nobody expected, that business could go south and all the 50 grand that you've invested in one business is now at risk. If you buy five businesses, businesses for $10,000, you get that diversification risk of, you know, of the five, you might have one that tanks for whatever reason. Uh, you might have one that you can double in size and is a home run. And you might have three that just kind of coast along however the seller had been and doing it. And so you spread your risk, but you also spread your focus. Now you've got to worry about five businesses that may or may not be directly related. So this is why I, I, I said it, that buying is definitely a viable a avenue uh, for people. Uh, and you, you brought up a good point. It doesn't, you don't have to have a ton of money. You could have just like a little extra money and start and, and maybe even start and find out, is this as fun as I thought it would be? Am I as passionate about this as I thought it would be? before quitting your day job, as an example. How did you get your start with, with SureSwift? Because you said that you've invested in 28 businesses in the last couple of years, and the first ones were a little bit smaller. Did you go out and buy five businesses right off the bat? 
Yeah, I was fortunate. So at that time where I was kind of deciding what to do with my career, I uh, was fortunate to have a friend who was a, you know, repeat successful entrepreneur uh, in like the software and internet based business space. And I had on the table in front of me, the, the metaphorical table, really three options. One was, you know, take another job with my current company and extend 15 years into 17 or 20. Another was uh, take a job with a competitor and move to Boston. Uh, and then a third was uh, there was a doctor in our local community that wanted to start a medical device uh, startup, like pure from scratch, just an idea, raise money, build a prototype, uh, go down that path. And all were um, had interesting things about them and then all had challenges about them. The startup was the one that I got the most excited about, but I knew it could totally go up in flames. And so, you know, I carried the most risk. So I, I called my friend for some advice and he said, uh, after several conversations, you know, I don't want to make your life even more complicated, but I've had this idea for a year uh, and I think you would be perfect to run it. Uh, and that idea ended up being sure with capital. So we pooled our money we started acquiring businesses and proved that the model worked. And then we later brought in, you know, a few other business partners with more substantial equity funding. We never really went out and raised a fund, you know, in quotes, like you'll hear a lot of people talk about um, whether it's a venture capital fund or a private equity fund. It's more of a you know, close partnership with people who knew each other, believed in an idea, and we don't take in outside funding to this point. And yeah, we started acquiring businesses. And as those were successful, we acquired larger and larger ones. And yeah, that two-year time frame it was really condensed, but it was really kind of a, you know, I'd like to say a methodical stair-stepping of like getting more and more aggressive and as, as we acquired bigger and bigger companies. I think one of the problems that most founders run into uh, and one of the biggest challenges really with, with starting any company is, is just growth, right? How do you get users to come to your business and the numbers that you want, how do you get them to buy and how do you keep that process happening indefinitely? And obviously the stage that you're operating at, where you're already buying these businesses that have had some success, growing and maintaining that customer base is top of, of mind for you. What are some of the techniques and the, and the things that you guys do to keep customers coming in the door to these companies that you buy and to grow them to bigger sizes than their founders were able to? I wish I could tell you that I had some magic formula that you know works every time or that you know somebody you hasn't thought of. <laughs> I don't. If I did, you know, pay somebody to create an online course and sell that because um, building a course is also something I have no talent in. But you know, it sounds it sounds boring, but it's discipline. Measure everything. You know, we we look very closely at any piece of data that we can on. You know, what is our, what are our acquisition channels? If there's a cost of acquisition, what is that? What are our churn rates? Very simply, like, especially in a SaaS or subscription-based business, uh, customer happiness is a high, high priority. And we call it customer happiness, not customer satisfaction, because satisfaction is too low a bar. And our customer success is kind of a, a trendy term these days, but like I aspire for customers to be happy. Like occasionally I get a receipt in my email saying, thank you for paying your $99 for XYZ thing. And I'm like, damn, that's worth 200 bucks. I would gladly pay that company double what I'm paying. I'm happy with them. That's what we aspire to for all of our customers. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's, it's boring, maybe cliche, but you know, discipline in trying to do the right thing every single day. And um, more commonly discussed, but again, we don't have some like secret answer, uh, testing new things. So I have the benefit of when I acquire a company, you know, I'm not living off of the, the profits from that company. It kind of goes into the greater pool. And so I can take a little bit more of a chance on a test. So whether that be try a paid traffic strategy that the founder either didn't think they could afford or didn't know how to execute or, you know, didn't, you know, have the, the mind space to kind of shift their priorities. We'll go take that chance and, and give it, you know, two, three months, look at the data. And if it's working, we'll double down and, and put more money into it. And if it's not working, we cut it. And 
we don't look back at the, you know, thousands of dollars that we might spend on that as a, as a failure if it doesn't work. We look at it as like, okay, that's part of our process. That's how we learn whether that's going to work or not, whether that's a sound investment. And if it's not a sound investment, we cut it off, but we don't kind of lose sleep over losing that, you know, several thousand dollars on that test. So I, I don't know if that is the answer you were looking for, but um, we just, my, my career was built on doing the right thing as many times as possible. And, you know, when you make a mistake, you admit it, you learn from it and you move on and try not to make the same mistake twice. And that's the approach that me and my team take with any business that we have under management is discipline, 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 do the right thing as many times as we can, treat customers really well. And, you know, don't be afraid to make a mistake, but then when you do, don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah, I think discipline might sound boring, but it's completely underrated because it's so easy. I mean, it's it's easy to make the same mistake twice, but it's even easier to make a mistake as a founder and then just quit. Right? A lot of founders will run into a wall where their plan for marketing or getting their product out the door and in the hands of customers doesn't work out the way that they thought it would. And rather than having your approach, which is, okay, this is just one of many attempts, you know, let's, let's write it down in the books and then try another one, they get discouraged and they quit. Well, and even easier than that, Portland, is not being willing to take the chance and make a mistake and just be complacent with the status quo. So your forum, the internet, the podcast world is filled with advice on how to grow a business, what to do next. Like there is no shortage of ideas or suggestions. A lot of them, it's not like they're counter to each other. It's not like Portland's telling people to do A and the other guy's telling people to do Z and it's completely opposite advice. Most of the advice is kind of the same stuff. And it's basic, what I would call blocking and tackling things of like doing, making smart business decisions. And I think it's often very... It, it's the easy path for not sure be like, yeah, you know, a different email marketing strategy might work, but you know, what's working now works and I'm just going to stick with that. Or I'm going to, you know, in, in the case of, you know, I've heard some of your, a lot of your uh, podcast guests are developers, like the easy path is I'm going to, I'm going to put my head down and write more code. I'm going to harden this code. I'm going to create a new feature. And that, those are all important things. I'm not saying that's not, but we fall into patterns of things that we're comfortable with and it's easy to do what we're comfortable with. And discipline uh, demands that you do those things well and you also do the things that are uncomfortable and find out if they're going to help you grow your business or not. You're speaking my language, Kevin. That's exactly what I think more people need to hear and, and really internalize because it's, it's kind of obvious advice if you hear it, but it's much harder to actually do it than to hear it. Yeah, and, and I don't want to make this sound like it's easy. I mean, part of part of my job is in, in um, leading up a group of like super talented people is to make sure we are taking a disciplined approach and not letting things fall through the cracks and not, you know, we, we say like good is never good enough and businesses can always get better and customers can always be happier. And like, what are we doing on each of those levels for every single business uh, every single day, every single week? to improve those. And it, I mean, even just saying it like that, Cortland, it's exhausting. And so, you know, it, this isn't for everybody. Uh, you know, I believe it, you know, going back to your question, is acquiring a reasonable path for entrepreneurship? Yes. That doesn't mean it's any easier. And, you know, to, to acquire more than one business gives you diversification, but as soon as you have two, it's that much more complicated. So, you know, I'm fortunate to have found uh, you know, partners and, and funding that allowed me to get to a scale of, um, you know, being able to make mistakes on every business and not have every one of them be a home run. And, you know, this is not necessarily the path for everybody because it is exhausting. You and your uh, audience know that it is very hard to run one business. Go try running 28. Um, it, it, <laughs> no, thanks. It, and, and doing so with a disciplined approach. And, you know, and it's not like it's all on Kevin. You know, I've got a team of just amazing, smart, talented people that help me with this. And I think they would all agree, like, this is hard work. You know, just because it's fun most of the time doesn't mean it's not hard. Yeah. Ryan Hoover, the uh, founder of Product Hunt, has a good blog post that he wrote a long time ago called Do Shitty Work. And it's just a to-do list of things that he needs to do for his startup. And it's like... A lot of this stuff is shitty and you're not going to want to do it, but you have to anyway if you want to move forward. Yeah, it's shitty. 
it can be boring. Um, it, it's, it can be, you know, like grueling at times, but that's what builds successful businesses. You if know? you're only doing the fun parts, then you're certainly neglecting other important parts. Yeah, the, I would say, you know, I don't have a blog post about it, but I like to use the time to fit all a good pitch. So I'm a, I'm a sports guy and do sports analogies. So to wake up and have on my board do shitty work, that's not very inspiring. But I, <laughs> I like it to, you know, to use the baseball analogy, people always talk about like home runs or hitting grand slam with business success. And yeah, that's cool when it happens. But home run hitters strike out more than they hit home runs. I like the analogy of I'm a pitcher. And I'm going to pitch every fourth day and I'm going to throw a hundred pitches in a game or more. My job is to throw a good pitch as many out of a hundred times as I can. And that is um, less interesting, but it's easier to focus. Like I can go to sleep every night and say, okay, did I throw a good pitch today? And if the answer is yes, then I've done my job. And because home runs don't happen often enough to you know, keep, keep you going between one day to the next. So you've bought about 30 companies at this point. Do you have any stories where after buying a company, your plan for sort of growing and maintaining that company ended up failing spectacularly or the opposite? Have you ever had a plan that just worked a lot better than you expected? It's interesting. So I've been listening to your podcast for a while. I'm going to tell you a story about a couple of businesses that are interrelated that um, was a, a total surprise. So I need you to tell me before this podcast airs because... Uh, I'm going to mention two businesses and all of my, all of our contracts have confidentiality clauses in them. And it's more of a mutual, we agree. Um, we're not going to talk about the financial details and we agree when and if we announce something publicly. So um, here's the story. I was at MicroComp, you know, which is a conference that I, you've talked about on a podcast. And I, have, I don't know if we were actually at the same conference. This was last uh, spring in Vegas. Okay. I went to this, this, Years, microconf in Vegas. Yeah, so just like whatever, six months ago or within the last four months. So we were in the same room and did not connect. So let's not let that happen. Next <laughs> but, yeah, definitely not. Um, so, so first night cocktail hour, I'm just there, you know, mingling. And um, I've run into a guy named Tyler Tringus, who your listeners will know. Uh, he's active on the forum. He's very much a fan of transparency and writes a lot of great content uh, and we just kind of get to chatting and you know oh kevin what do you do i acquire companies what do you do i have this business called store mapper and we you know talk he talks about his business and how successful it's been and where they're at trajectory wise etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm like well, that's, that's really cool i mean that's right in the wheelhouse of the types of businesses that we're interested in because you've got traction it's a, it's a SaaS model uh, you know, it's lightweight, talented contractors, but not a lot of overhead, good customer base, blah, blah, blah. All this, you know, checking off a lot of our top 10 boxes. And we kind of left it at that. Like, oh, great meeting you, exchange cards, we go mingle. And, um, you know, following up the conference, I just sent him and I said, you know, hey, Tyler, great meeting you. If you're interested in selling, give me a ring. And I'll spare you the details of the, you know, all of the back and forth, but, you know, we started talking. He's like, I'm not really interested in selling, but here's kind of where I'm thinking. Here's what I think the path is for the business. And, uh, you know, Tyler is a very smart guy, studies the industry. He's so really, you know, knew what he wanted. I uh, knew the, the pros and the cons of his business, frankly. Like he knew where there were, there were holes and he was just uh, upfront about that, which I really appreciated. And so on one of our phone calls, he says, okay, Kevin, you know, this is interesting. Let's take it a step forward, but I don't really know. Uh, give me a couple of examples of businesses you've acquired. Uh, and, you know, if your listeners go to our website, it's not real public about what's in the portfolio and that's with purpose. So, you know, I give him a couple of examples and I'm like, oh, there's this other business that we acquired called uh, MailParser. Uh, URL is mailparser.io. Uh, acquired that from a you know German engineer in France, and you know the the punch of this story. That's a guy named Moritz Dasinger, who we also had in the podcast. We had bought mail parcel from Moritz, you know, maybe six months prior, and it was going really great. And Moritz is still like an extended member of the family. I was just on Slack with him yesterday, uh, but I didn't mention the name. I just I just said mail parcel is the business in a list of like three, thinking that he would go you know, check out the websites and see if there's, you know, details on what we had released lately or whatever. So 
Tyler calls me 24 hours later, not, not giving me a hint of what, what was going on in the background. He called me 24 hours later and he's like, when you mentioned mail parser, it struck a chord with me because I remember I met Moritz at a conference in Paris. I called him after we hung up and Moritz had very good things to say about Schrist with Capital and said it was a perfect fit and the transition went great. Everything was great. And, you know, he said, don't think twice, sell to Kevin if it's the right fit for you and for your business, Tyler. And I was like, oh, you can't. You can't make that stuff up, right? Like, <laughs> I meet Tyler at cocktail hour. He happens to know Moretz. They get they're friendly, and they kept in touch years after meeting each other at conference. And you know, like four or five months later, Store Mapper is part of our portfolio, and Tyler's still helping us transition it. And the reason why, uh, you know, and Tyler knows that I'm coming on the podcast. He actually introduced us, but before this it drops to the public. We agreed that he could announce on his his blog or his email list um, that he had sold Store Mapper. So uh, that that was the question about the timing. But you know, in terms of like, I can't remember how you phrased it. Like unlikely stories or what surprised me. Like that was a surprise when Tyler. You know, it's you, people talk about a small world, but that's smaller than I thought it would be. And you know, the fact that you and I were in the same uh, conference just a few months ago and have these similar ideas about, you know, the right and wrong ways to, to start or grow a business and, you know, how to think about funding, how to think about, you know, how your personal life overlaps with uh, your business life and, you know, my words, not yours. But yeah, that was, that was like one of these, one of these stories where, you know, I, I, I ended up telling a friend of mine over a beer and he was just like rolling his eyes and shaking his head. Like <laughs> this sounds made up, but no, it's, it's true, and uh, it, I mean, those are those are two of my favorite businesses in the portfolio: Stormapper and Mailparser. Have you guys ever made any big mistakes with buying a company? I imagine when you first started, that uh, there was a lot of uncertainty there, and there are probably some things that you would not repeat if you could go back. Yes, um, the mistakes are are many and too many for this podcast. But I, in general, I think um, you know you look at what I do as like in, investing. I make investment decisions in businesses and. You always um, expect the best, but plan for the worst. And anybody who's made um, more than one investment and tells you that everyone has gone perfectly is either lying to you or lying to themselves or both. So, you know, when a business is for sale, like I said, that the seller and if there's a broker involved, a broker will emphasize all the wonderful things and maybe de-emphasize any risks. And despite, you know, as much due diligence as we could do and try to look over every detail, um, there either might be something that was missed that happens rarely and probably less and less so as I have a more of a robust deal team that looks at every deal. You know, so I have my technical guy look at the code. I have my my finance guy look at all the books so that I'm not just relying on my own expertise or judgment. But those things happen. You know, you could miss a key element that um, ends up you know, hurting you down the road. But the, the more common thing, you know, we talked about the SaaS businesses. We have a couple of uh, more of that call, but we have some content-based businesses in the portfolio because they're easy to run. Uh, they spit out cash. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, the, uh, the ever-present risk that's always there is that Google makes some sort of change and all of a sudden a website that was popular uh, yesterday is slightly less popular today. Uh, and so we've, we've had, we've had those things. And so we just kind of try to control against those. We're focused, focused more on SAS today than we were in the past for, for some of those reasons. But, um, yeah, like I said earlier, business in general is hard. Running an internet based business is harder. Running a small internet based business is harder still. And so the reason it's hard is because there's risk and surprises and challenges that come up. And so, we are in no way immune to those things. Um, we just try to mitigate those risks or lower those risks as much as we can up front, be prepared when they happen. You know, I've got stories of like websites being attacked or somebody forwards me an email saying, um, it looks like someone other than you is now in control of this business. Oh, no. You might want to look into that. Yeah, I mean, crazy stuff like that didn't, you know, didn't end up you know, we recovered uh, and luckily I've got, you know, we thought we had all the right plans in place and protections in place, but, you know, missed something apparently. Uh, so those, those things happen and 
we just try to reduce the chances of those happening. And if something bad happens, we have a plan to react and how to fix it. So we're getting low on time here, but to wrap things up, let me ask you, what are your long-term goals as an entrepreneur and with Shore Swift Capital specifically? Well, go public and sell for a billion dollars. Like any. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my long-term goals are to, um, we're on a path there already. Like what I wanted was control of my life. I wanted financially to be the same spot or better than it was in my corporate job. I wanted to build a team of really talented people that I enjoy working with and that I'm inspired by. And so like, check, 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 those are done. Um, now it's about um, building a sustainable business and continuing to grow uh, and you know, creating your return for myself and the other partners. And kind of what path that takes it is still TBD, but we're we're a buy and hold uh, company. We do not set out to flip businesses after five or seven years. So we make investments on on businesses that we want to own you know, for the foreseeable future. And you know that's that's it. And you know I I more and more want to kind of contribute to the ecosystem in general. And one of the reasons why I'm glad I got connected with you is because I believe in what you're doing with your forum and your podcast and kind of creating an environment for people who want to get into entrepreneurship or are and want to get better at it. And so I'm investing my time and the company's money into certain ways to whether it's sponsor a conference or, you know, be on a podcast or contribute to a forum, because I believe that, um, this type of opportunity is immense and it's so good for so many people. And I now start to look more at what we're doing as a really good viable outcome for many, many of the thousands of people that are your audience or other audiences similar to yours. So without sounding like, this is a, a charitable endeavor because it is not like I am a hard capitalist and it's about making money for me and my partners at the end of the day. And I feel really good that um, for people like Ritz, people like Tyler, uh, you know, some woman listening to, to your podcast or remember your forum someday, their life might be changed by, you know, selling their business to Shirtswift Capital or somebody like me, because not every business is a fit for my portfolio. But I believe if there are more exit opportunities for successful business people at this kind of smaller, moderate scale, frankly, the world's a better place. Um, and so I don't necessarily have a clear vision of like how I can contribute to that or what the steps are to do that, other than we're going to continue to acquire businesses we're going to continue to you know, share best practices across those, help every business grow, provide opportunity for founders who may want to continue to be involved. You, know, you can be involved in their company or other companies that are part of the portfolio. We provide opportunity for dozens of uh, you know, contractors and freelancers every day, week, month, which feels great to me. You know, long term, that those are the things I think about. Like we, we've got a plan and a path to like continue to acquire and make money. Long-term, I want to see what we can do as a company and as a community within SureSwift to have an impact on the broader ecosystem of entrepreneurship. The world would certainly be a better place if there are more exit opportunities to incentivize people to start these kinds of businesses and people who did had more options for success in the long term. And I think it, you've been doing this, you've been in this kind of mindset and in place longer than me. Wouldn't you agree that we're already going that direction? Like, oh yeah, for sure. It, it's easier to start a business today than it was ten years ago. Yeah, I feel like it's easier to exit a business today than it was even two years ago when I got into it. Um, and so I think the the, the world's moving that way. My goal is to move it that way, maybe a little bit faster and maybe a little bit healthier. Because um, sad as it is, there are other people out there that you know that maybe have different different philosophy of, about how to do business, how to treat people, how to treat founders, where it's like a buyer versus seller relationship. And 
I feel better if you're getting screwed. And I, I don't, I don't take that approach. Uh, and so my, my goal is to, you know, support the people that do things the way that I, you know, have similar values, similar beliefs in what I do and what we do as a company. You know, I think the chips will fall. Hopefully chips will fall the right way. That This this industry kind of get, just gets better and just gets healthier over time. Could not agree more. Could you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to personally and what you're doing at Shoreswift Capital? Yeah, you can drop us a line at shoreswiftcapital.com. But the best way is um, email me, Kevin, at shoreswiftcapital.com or on Twitter. Twitter is the one social platform that I put any time into. It's at Kevin underscore McArdle, and that's McArdle with one C, M-C-A-R-D-L-E. I am more of a curator and communicator than a, than a tweeter myself, but that's a, those are the email and Twitter, the best ways to get home. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Cortland. It was really a pleasure and uh, talk to you again soon. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Andy Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.